by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Tamaglou. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today, and if you probably went and founded a new country today, and you know, you rocked up on a boat and said, "Right, you now we're going to settle here. Um, this is the place we're going to we're going to make home," you probably wouldn't build the energy system that we currently have. The transition into renewable energy, the mistakes we made with our current energy system, and what we can do right this time around. And you've probably heard about spider venom, but what about ant venom? And why is it being used to create an insecticide? But first, the tradition is that if there's mistletoe hanging up in a doorway or somewhere, you can kiss whoever's under the mistletoe and remove a berry from that mistletoe. This is Melinda Cook, a master's candidate from the University of Technology, Sydney. And Melinda loves mistletoe. Do you know why they do that? No. I've never, I've never really thought about it. It probably has something to do with fertility or something like that because mistletoes are sort of revered for fertility causes and things like that. How no. so? How are they revered for that? They have a lot of herbal medicinal purposes and some of them are related to fertility. Certainly internationally, traditional Christmas mistletoe viscum album is being investigated to help with cancer um, and remedial cancer treatment. You might not know this, but mistletoe are actually parasites, hemiparasitics to be more exact, and they live off the nutrients of other plants like trees. If you look at a gum tree, for instance, you might see sort of teardrop shapes in that tree that are more dense than the rest of the leaves, and that's actually mistletoe growing in that host tree. In Australia, we have 90-odd species of mistletoe, and more than 70 of those are endemic and found only in Australia. So while they have a bad reputation, they are actually native to Australia. Seeing as they are these hemiparasites, does that make them good or bad? Depends on who you talk to. From my point of view, they're good. They're considered bad because of the reputation of parasites, and a lot of farmers don't like them because there are too many mistletoes on a tree. It, they can damage the tree and in some cases lead to death. But for the most part, they're good. Mistletoes are keystone resources. So a keystone resource is something that provides disproportionately high benefits to an ecosystem relative to their abundance. So there may not be many mistletoes in the environment, but they provide disproportionately high benefits to that environment. They may not provide benefits directly to the tree, but they provide benefits to the ecosystem that the tree lives in. This is mainly through leaf litter. So they have a lot of leaf litter that's water and nutrient rich and that coats the ground and that stimulates microbial activity in the soil which flows on to increased abundance and diversity in invertebrate species, um, in insects, and that has flow-on effects. But Melinda's research is focusing on one animal's relationship with mistletoe in particular. Well, my second great love is birds. So looking at the 
relationship between birds and mistletoes was sort of an obvious step for me. Mistletoes produce lots of nectar and fruits, and they're great nesting structures for birds, so they have a really strong relationship. And they also disperse, birds disperse the mistletoe seeds. So if you see a mistletoe somewhere, a bird probably placed it there. Why are you looking at the foraging behaviours of birds when it comes to mistletoe? Why is that important? I'm interested in looking at how the birds find the mistletoes and what implications that might have for the seed dispersal of those mistletoes. Because here in Australia, our woodland bird species are in decline, so there's fewer birds in more and more fragmented habitat. And mistletoes might be a good resource to encourage in the remaining woodland fragments to try and help bolster our woodland birds. Do you know how they can kind of track mistletoe down? Do they just smell it or...? Some birds, like mistletoe birds, that have a very strong relationship with the mistletoe, they feed primarily on mistletoe. In a given environment, if there are lots of mistletoes there, you'll find mistletoe birds there. What species of bird are mistletoe birds? Mistletoe birds. Oh, they're actually called mistletoe birds. Oh, what are they? What do they look like? Uh, So they're they're small birds. Uh, They have a sort of a a black kind of coat along their back with a a little red patch on their belly, um, otherwise white. Quite cute little birds. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of, I guess, to to have more and more mistletoe to encourage birds to come back into these ecosystems, is that something that you can really tackle as an issue? Is that something that you can like help to to happen? Um, that's a very interesting question because I'm working on a project at the moment to bring more mistletoes back into urban environments, um, specifically in Melbourne City Council area. Right. And how are you doing that? So we're working on an experiment to inoculate the plane trees of Melbourne with mistletoe seeds to try and bolster the population there. And so when you say inoculate, do you mean like put some seeds near trees? And Yeah, so we'll go around and collect the fruits of the mistletoe and squeeze out the seed onto branches because there's a sticky viscous layer, a sort of pulpy layer around the seed that's really sticky and you can rub that onto the branch and literally plant the seed. Is that because you were saying before that there are certain instances of where mistletoe can actually do damage to a plant? Is that a risk there, that by planting these seeds, maybe a tree or or something might respond negatively to that? It's a very low risk. What is more likely to happen is that the tree will go, oh, mistletoe, and not allow that mistletoe to grow and penetrate the host to create that sort of symbiotic relationship. While mistletoe oases are being thought up for birds in urban areas, the deforestation of woodlands in which they live is creating some other serious problems. For the birds that rely on mistletoe, if there is no longer any mistletoe in that area, they'll avoid it. They won't be found in that area anymore. And that's especially important for species like the painted honeyeater and the regent honeyeater, which rely on mistletoe and they're vulnerable and endangered. For other birds, it may not be quite a problem because mistletoe is more like a treat than a a staple food. But yeah, once the mistletoes are gone, the birds generally go with it. Do some of those birds, they don't pollinate the mistletoe, do they? Some do. They do. And if there are no birds there to pollinate mistletoe or if there is no mistletoe there, an ecosystem can, can change entirely. Maybe not. Entirely, entirely, but it will feel the loss of the mistletoe. 
Melinda Cook, Master's Candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Spider venom is used for a number of things. It can be used as an anti-venom for a dangerous spider bite and can even be incorporated into pharmaceuticals that help with chronic pain. But have you ever heard of extracting venom from an ant? Samira Eiley from the University of Technology, Sydney, is part of a research project looking at using the venom of ants to form a bio-insecticide. This insecticide would help tackle global issues of food security and poverty, without relying on the synthetic and chemical-based pesticides that flood agricultural fields today. Well, because our population is increasing massively, and at this rate there's not enough food to supply the people, the added fact is that, as you know, there's massive hunger problems in the world, there's famines being declared, and we're still not being able to increase our food supply. We're not going to increase our land, so one way to attack the problem is to attack the insects. That way we at least increase our crops by 20%, which is right now almost what the insects are causing in terms of destruction to the crops. Worldwide? Worldwide, yeah. Right. Insert ant venom. You were just talking about a spider venom being commercialised as a bioinsecticide. I actually will have a question first. How do you get the ant venom? Yeah, <laughs> that's the most common question I get. So the abdomen is the backside of the ant, and it's not when you get bitten by an ant, it's not actually them binding you, it's them inserting their stinger, which is located at the back end. So the venom gland is just above there. They have a stinger like bees. We remove the whole stinger with the venom gland attached. So we take the glands from hundreds of them and then get the venom out that way. What type of ant? So most of my ants are actually from South America, and they're sent by our collaborators over there. You might have heard of the bullet ant, Parapanera clavata. That one's a is the inflicts the most painful insect sting known to man. And wow, really? yeah, so on a scale of one to seven by the person who's created this scale, number seven is the bullet ant. It actually has pain that lasts for over two days. Why is it so just, painful? That's what we're trying to figure out. They they associate the pain to one particular peptide, which is the neurotoxic one. What's a peptide? A peptide is a small protein, but then there's a whole lot of other things in the venom as well that would cause the pain. Is it literally going out into an area and just getting some ants? Yep, yep. So most of my ants are actually from South America, in a French Guiana in South America. So my collaborator Axel Tushar is actually the one who's responsible for dissecting all the ants, which is great. <laughs> he just goes out into the forest, as he says, um, just go into the forest this weekend and I'll collect some ants for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just got an email this weekend like that. Um, we went up to the Blue Mountains once with him. He came over and we literally just walk around, look under rocks until you find... Because they usually live in colonies, so you find a whole lot of them, put them into a bag and bring them back home. Why have we historically looked at spiders first and used their venom as opposed to ants when it seems that if they do bunch in colonies, there are much more of them and there seem to be a more suitable option in the first place? Yeah, exactly. Obviously, when you think venoms, you think spiders, you think snakes, you think all these ones. And 
Ants are usually the last thing you think of as having a venom that to look at. Also the fact that historically the instruments available to analyse venoms are not as advanced as they are now, so it was difficult to analyse small amounts of material, which was the case with ants. Whereas spiders, you get a lot more venom from them, and usually you can get... It's a renewable resource. You take it once, leave them for a few weeks, and then you can get the venom, milk the venom again. They, like, um, develop it back. Whereas with ants, what we've been doing is actually dissecting the whole venom gland out, which means the ant obviously is dead now and you can't use the venom again. But we've actually been looking at electrical stimulation as a form to get the venom out of the ant, and that has worked, and we found that it is similar to dissected venom as well. Right, and so you expose them to, like, an electric current or something? Yeah, exactly that. So, Do they have to die because of that? No, no, they don't. So that's why we're looking at that as an option as well. So you have the ant venom and you're putting it into something to form this bioinsecticide. Are you mixing it with other things or is it literally just the venom itself that you would be using? Yeah, it's just the venom. So we're not mixing it with anything. We just get the venom out, then we separate it, and then what I would then do would be to test the venom. So I usually inject it into crickets and then see if there's any effect or no effect. If the cricket has died, then you know it's been effective. If not, you separate it again based on a different technique, test them again until you reach to the single one peptide that's causing the effect. Because you start off with hundreds and you need to narrow it down to one. Why do other insects respond so strongly to this ant venom? Is it quite potent? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. That particular one, the Ponrata Parapineric levata, which is the bullet ant, is very potent. And what we're trying to find is, are the others as potent as this one? Are they as potent as spiders, which are super potent? And that's what we're trying to figure out. If we're using this venom to attack insects that are attacking crops per se, would that have an implication for humans that we might be affected by that same venom? So that's one of the testing steps that needs to be done. So with all insecticides and other therapeutics. They need to be tested on mammals and on human cells and then obviously on humans as well. Most of the time there won't be a effect on humans, especially with the case of ants. They're not seen to be dangerous to humans unless you're allergic. So the fact that it might be affecting humans is low, especially the fact that insects are usually are very specific to their prey. So I know some ants which will only be insecticidal to a certain termite. So one of mine was super complex. It had so many things, tested it on the crickets, nothing happened to the cricket. When you look into, did some research on it, I found that it only preys on termites. So although it had so many components in the venom, none of it was working on crickets, which was our target organism. I guess that makes sense. You would have an ant that would evolve to have a certain predator and its venom would only apply to a termite. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's how it works. So that's what we would really like is to have a venom that's only targeting agricultural pests and not affecting bees, for example, which is one of the major problems right now. So if it could be specific for lepidopterans, for example, that would be great. What are they? It's just a class of insects. They're usually one of the ones that affect crops. Then it would be great for it not to affect bees. How do you find it researching into this area of, you know, naturally derived insecticides compared to the abundance of synthetic ones available on the market, which I guess historically have been used out of convenience and perhaps because they are cheaper? Obviously, this is a growing field because the current supply 
it's a decreasing more so because of resistance by the insects. So they're not becoming effective at all. So you might have found it yourself if you're home trying to spray a cockroach and it's not really working because that insecticide is no longer effective. Cockroaches have been able to develop resistance to them, along with the fact that most of them are harmful to human health and to the environment and to especially to animals as well. So going to the natural side is... I feel like the best option for us because there's also the fact that the current problem with it is that a lot of pharmaceutical companies aren't really agreeing to develop this or fund these types of projects because there is the belief or the stigma that it's not going to be as tolerated by the insect or it's not going to be as effective because they are peptides, they might not be absorbed properly. So there's still stuff to be done before we can develop them fully. Samira Eiley, PhD candidate from the University of Technology, Sydney. The transition to renewable energy isn't one that relies on just big shot power companies and politicians. It's one that involves you as well. As we become more environmentally and sustainably minded, more of us are seeking out cleaner and more renewable ways to power our lives. But that transition can be intimidating and sometimes expensive. Adrian Merrick is the founder of Energy Locals, which is Australia's first social enterprise energy retailer. I caught up with Adrian to find out who's making the switch to solar and battery power and asked him if the average Australian's home is still powered by the typical giant power station. No, not these days. I mean, it kind of used to be, and you know, people used to wait before building the old power stations that we're now closing down for a long time until they had real certainty that people were going to need them. Um, and nowadays the gates are being slowly shut on those and people are generating this themselves. And if you probably went and founded a new country today and you, know, you rocked up on a boat and said, right, you know, we're going to settle here, um, this is the place we're going, to, we're going to make home, and you started from scratch and you built your roads and whatever else, you probably wouldn't build the energy system that we currently have. And why not? Because there are alternatives. Um, for the first time in you know, generations of doing this the same way, there are now real viable alternatives. The technology has been there for a while. It's now cheap enough and it's now becoming pretty mainstream. So, you know, solar is, is on the roofs of a greater proportion of households in Australia than any other country, but we've still got a long way to go. So there's still huge opportunity to get this generation out there. Batteries are becoming a much more viable thing. In the space of 12 months, Tesla doubled the capacity for virtually the same price in its batteries. So that kind of speed of transition, if you think about what happens, what's happened with other types of technology, mobile phones, computers, you know, the speed of the learning curve bringing down the cost of that technology and the, the change in adoption rate means that I think over the course of the generation that we're currently in, we're going to see some real, really rapid changes to our energy system. And I think by and large, that's going to be for the better, but I think there'll be a few bumps along the way. In terms of looking at setting up like a local energy network as opposed to, you know, getting all your energy from a big power station or whatever, what is the actual process of that? Yeah, and look, and this is something that a lot of people are wrestling with, and there's a lot of really keen people out there that want to learn this for themselves, and they, they're not from an energy background, and they're trying to solve these questions. Um, one of the things we're trying to do is to add the retail component of that, which is one of the most complex to the mix so that they can add this very easily. But... It depends what you're trying to do. If you want to look at, say, an individual community centre or a, a school, and if there is no solar generation on site, then you can ass assess pretty easily whether that is a sensible investment that should be made. Um, the question then is, well, if you've got excess solar, how do I bring that to other customers in the local area? 
you can say, well, we've got this excess generation, so how can I pay that local renewable owner for the energy that I'm then using? So that is then a financial transaction that instead of going to maybe a retailer that owns coal power stations and say, hey, you know, what's the price that you're going to give me? And, you know, that they will buy energy from wherever they, they buy it from. But you know that in the background, they're still running some of these assets, which many people are, are not too keen on these days for, for obvious reasons. Instead, you can talk to a local company or a local community organization and say, well, you've put this solar onto the roofs of different buildings within the local community. There's excess solar coming from that. You know, let us pay you for that. We can act as the people that can enable that transaction by supplying those customers with a retail tariff. We pass on the revenue to the local community organisations so that they can more quickly pay back cost of the solar they installed and then keep on getting more of that put into the community. Say, So I live in Enmore and say that in my house I want to move to a more locally based energy network, but right now I'm getting all my electricity from the grid. How do I transition? Do I have to say to where I'm getting my energy from, like, take me off the grid and I'll call you up and be like, how can I source my power from other means? Is it just like cutting off from the grid? And how do you do that? I was in a a world in the past where I wrote to a large number of customers about a price change and one of them wrote back and thanked me for it, which I thought was a bit strange because there weren't many sort of thank you letters. As an energy company, you don't really receive much fan mail um, (laughs) ever. Um, In fact, never. And I thought this is a bit strange. So I kept reading the letter as a, a guy in South Australia and he thanked me for the price increase because he said, this is now the final part of the business case that I needed to get off grid. So screw you, yours faithfully whatever he was. So um, off he went. So there are customers out there who say, I just want to disconnect from the grid. Uh, And I think we're going to see an increase in the number of people doing that. I I don't think the time for people to defect en masse from the grid is is necessarily the right time just yet. Um, I think the grid can and should be a very useful asset because if people are generating energy within their, on their property, they're storing it in their property, and you know, human nature says people are often using it at different times of day, um, then actually the ability to have some sort of connection between those different forms of generation, storage and usage is quite useful because you ha- have access to the grid either for an emergency when it's just a really stinking hot day and everyone's drawing down um, power or just times when um, you happen to be um, using Um, more than you are necessarily generating, not everyone else is, so you can borrow some of, or not borrow, you can use some of their excess solar generation. So I I wouldn't throw away the grid straight away. I think we'll see more of that over time. Um, What can people do? There's a couple of things. Firstly, um, look at where you're getting your energy from right now. If you're not going to get yourself off the grid today and you are using the grid, which is 99 point lots of people, then where's it coming from? Is it carbon neutral? What are these companies doing to try and change the mix of energy in the country? Are you getting a fair deal? Is there lots of small print? Are there kind of made up numbers that you can't you know, fathom out until the bill arrives? So firstly, just take a long, hard look at who you're getting it from and the, and the kind of construct of that deal. The second would be, is there an investment opportunity for you in solar? So on the roof of your building, uh, is there a way that you could do that? And increasingly, people are having a go at this. I just met someone at UTS who has a student house that he set up a cooperative in with a bunch of other people and they converted that into what's called an embedded network. So they effectively took the individual apartments within the building off the grid. So they still have meters, but they have kind of meters that aren't really on the normal energy market. 
they then put solar on the roof and they stuck a bunch of batteries in. Um, so now they consume 80% of their energy from self-generated sources. So they right. generate it, they store it, get stored when they're not there during the day because they're in lectures, and then in the evening they're drawing it down from the batteries. So out of a big set of apartments, they're only consuming about the same amount as one average residential customer would. So mm. many cases, if it's done well, the amount they pay into that should be less than the savings they're making from the grid. On a monthly basis, they're in a net positive position from day one. Why is it cheaper? It's cheaper because the cost of technology has come right down. Um, so I'm not necessarily saying batteries yet. They've got a little way to go before I'd really recommend that they're a viable option for a large number of people. Uh, solar, however, has, has come down in price substantially. And conversely, grid energy prices have been going up. The parity point between grid and solar crossed a couple of years ago. And as grid prices keep going up and solar keeps getting cheaper, that gap is just widening and that just makes the business case better every month it goes by. Adrian Merrick, founder of Energy Locals. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. You can find us also on iTunes. For more info, also head to our website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Leah Summerglue. See you next week. <laughs>